Operation Cyclone was the code name for the United States Central Intelligence Agency program to arm and finance Mujahideen, Afghan anti-Soviet militants, in Afghanistan from 1979 to 1989 prior to and during the military intervention by the USSR in support of its client, the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan. The Mujahideen were also supported by Britain's MI6, who conducted separate covert actions. The program leaned heavily towards supporting militant Islamic groups, including groups with jihadist ties that were favored by the regime of Muhammad Zia-ul-Haq in neighboring Pakistan, rather than other less ideological Afghan resistance groups that had also been fighting the Soviet-oriented Democratic Republic of Afghanistan regime since before the Soviet intervention. Operation Cyclone was one of the longest and most expensive covert CIA operations ever undertaken. Funding officially began with $695,000 in 1979, was dramatically increased to 20 to $30 million per year in 1980, and rose to $630 million per year in 1987, described as the biggest bequest to any Third World Insurgency. Funding continued, albeit reduced, after the 1989 Soviet withdrawal as the Mujahideen continued to battle the forces of President Muhammad Najibullah's army during the Afghan Civil War, 1989 to 1992. First document is President Jimmy Carter's July 3rd, 1979 finding authorizing Covert support for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan months before the Soviets invaded. So this was secret, sensitive, classified material. The description of it says, Support insurgent propaganda and other psychological operations in Afghanistan. Establish radio access to the Afghan population through third country facilities. Provide unilaterally or through third countries as appropriate support to Afghan insurgents, either in the form of cash or non-military supplies. Signed by Jimmy Carter, July 3rd, 1979. Second document is December 26th, 1979, from National Security Advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski, Memorandum 4, the President, Reflections on Soviet Intervention in Afghanistan. He mentions, World public opinion may be outraged at the Soviet intervention. Clearly, Muslim countries will be concerned, and we might be in a position to exploit this. He talks about giving the Soviets their Vietnam. A Soviet Vietnam. However, we should not be too sanguine about Afghanistan becoming a Soviet Vietnam. B. To make the above possible, we must both reassure Pakistan and encourage it to help the rebels. This will require a review of our policy toward Pakistan, more guarantees to it, more arms aid, and everything else is blanked out. C. We should encourage the Chinese to help the rebels also. D. We should concert with Islamic countries, both in a propaganda campaign and in a covert action campaign to help the rebels. Documents openly discussing how they use propaganda to exploit public opinion. Finally, we have National Security Decision Directive Number 166, 
dated March 27th, 1985, top secret document, U.S. Policy Programs and Strategy in Afghanistan. The two principal elements in our Afghanistan strategy are a program of covert action support to the Afghan resistance and our diplomatic political strategy to pressure the Soviet Union to withdraw its forces from Afghanistan and to increase international support for the Afghan resistance forces. They go on to say how they get the weapons there, maintain good working relations with Pakistan. In the absence of an alternative routes of supply into Afghanistan, such relations are essential to the program signed by President Ronald Reagan. Here is my discussion on the origins of Al-Qaeda with Scott Horton, author of Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. It is my conviction that killing under the cloak of war is nothing but an act of murder. Welcome to Keith Knight. Don't tread on anyone today. We'll be discussing enough already. Time to end the war on terrorism with the author Scott Horton. Scott, thank you for your time. Hi, Keith. How are you doing, man? I'm doing excellent as always. Uh, we uh, started the war on terrorism, and rather the government did, in 2001 to fight a war against al-Qaeda. According to your book, you cite a CIA official saying that there were about 400 al-Qaeda members at the time. So after 20 years and trillions of dollars, thousands of American lives, hundreds of thousands of civilian lives, how many al-Qaeda members are there today? That's a great question. It depends on how broadly you define it. But if you want to throw in uh, the Islamist fighters in Mali and in Libya, in Algeria and Somalia, and go as far as to include, you know, supposed bin Ladenites in even fighting in India and in Pakistan, then you could count up to, you know, probably better than 100,000. If you want to really narrow it down to actual bin Ladenite terrorists determined to attack America and our closest allies in the Middle East really target the United States. In other words, actual terrorists, not just fighters who are members of Bin Ladenite style militias, wherever they may be. Um, then I think you're talking, you know, probably low tens of thousands now, which is, you know, certainly vastly higher than the 400 we started with 20 years ago. You're right about that. I try to be specific and differentiate between, for example, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula which I would characterize as real Al-Qaeda guys, as different from entirely in a separate category from Al-Shabaab in Somalia, who are really nothing but a local indigenous force with parochial concerns and are not a transnational threat at all. They declare their loyalty to Al-Qaeda in exchange for a sack of money, but that doesn't mean that they're on their way to Europe to blow up stuff. You know, they're fighting their own war there. I want to get to the uh, history of this group called Al-Qaeda. What is the Azam group? Mm -hmm. Okay, so there was Azam. Abdullah Azam was actually a Palestinian who helped lead. And, and he was, I'm not sure where he was actually from. He may have been a refugee from Kuwait or God knows where. I don't know. Um, I really should read up on him. Um, but he was essentially one of the major leaders of the Arab Afghan army in Afghanistan, fighting the freedom fighters, helping the local Afghan Mujahideen to resist the Soviets in their invasion that began in 79 and, and stayed, you know, their occupation throughout the 1980s. And he was killed, I think in like, uh, 89, 90, something right around the end of that war. And bin Laden, Osama bin Laden became 
essentially the leader of the Azam group. And then he merged it in the early 1990s with Ayman al-Zawahiri's Egyptian Islamic Jihad. And that's what we now call al-Qaeda today. And what are some important uh, things to understand about bin Laden's history before everyone heard of him uh, on September 11th? Yeah, well, you know, importantly, and, you know, I'll go ahead and, and quote, and this guy's kind of a bad guy now, but he wrote a lot of really smart, important stuff about this in the early days of the war on terrorism. His name is Michael Scheuer. He was the former chief of the CIA's bin Laden unit. And he wrote that, you know, it's really meaningful that bin Laden, who was the son of a billionaire, had taken his resources and devoted a vast amount of uh, wealth to the Mujahideen's effort in Afghanistan in the 1980s in terms of bringing in construction equipment and building all their forts and hideouts and, and uh, you know, supplying them with all sorts of, you know, whatever food and everything else that they needed. And he was wounded three times in battle. He was in a giant battle, I think, in Jalalabad, this kind of thing. And he slept on the floor of the cave in the dirt with his guys. And so for the son of a billionaire from, from Saudi Arabia to come and live like this among the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, it really earned him a lot of credibility as a leader, you know, among those guys. And then what happened was he came home to Saudi Arabia right around the time that Saddam Hussein is invading Kuwait. And the United States is offering its services to so-called protect Saudi Arabia and drive Iraq back out of Kuwait. And this incensed Osama bin Laden because he thought that, first of all, he and his men should have been sent to Kuwait to force the Iraqis out, which probably wouldn't have worked because there weren't a lot of mountains and caves for them to hide in and stuff like that. And so, you know, that kind of insurgency probably wouldn't be too successful on the streets of Kuwait City. I don't know. Um, but anyway... He was mad as hell that the Americans were invited to come in, you know, predominantly white and Christian and from the other side of the planet, not just to their home country, but to their holy land, the Arabian Peninsula, land of Mecca, Medina, the birthplace of Prophet Muhammad and the religion of Islam. And so uh, this was taken as, you know, the ultimate affront. And then, as you know, I've told the story on the show before many times, in the aftermath of the first Iraq war, the Americans decided to stay in Saudi Arabia. And that was the real thing where bin Laden began to denounce the Saudi king. He was in exile from the country and went to Sudan for a time. And then from there was kicked out of Sudan and, and fled to Afghanistan in 1996, where he then released his declaration of war against the United States. And that it was actually called Declaration of War Against the Americans Occupying the Land of the Two Holy Places. Straight and to the point. What is uh, some important information on the guy you said he joined groups with, Ayman al-Zawahiri? Mm. So he was a prominent surgeon from Cairo, Egypt. And I guess, you know, was kind of credited as being the brains behind bin Laden. He had the, the kind of stature to be the figurehead leader where Zawahiri was kind of the thinker. And, you know, in fact, that same CIA officer you cited at the beginning there, her name is Cynthia Storer. And she told me, well, you know, look, it wasn't just Ayman al-Zawahiri's idea. There's, there was a lot of people talking about this inside the Mujahideen movements after Afghanistan and as they're fighting in Bosnia and in Chechnya and in Kosovo and these kind of smaller engagements that 
what's our future? What are we going to do? You know, we're this band of essentially these guys are unemployable as anything but jihadist mercenary killers, right? So, and they're and a lot of times their governments don't want them to come home. They're terrified of them, right? That's kind of why they kicked them out to go and hopefully die in Afghanistan in the first place back a few years ago. Now they got all this combat experience and they're even more dangerous. They started doing terrorist attacks in Egypt and things like this. And so they were kind of exiled. They were sort of running around in near stateless areas like Afghanistan and places in Central Asia where there's very little government authority that can reach them. And then, but the idea was, that so where do we go from here well we want to overthrow the saudi king uh king fad for letting the americans occupy saudi arabia and we want to overthrow king hussein in jordan and we want to overthrow uh obviously saddam hussein in iraq and all these people in our way and so uh, and obviously hasna mubarak the el presidente so-called uh, president of egypt who is really just a military dictator an american sock puppet and Yet, how are we supposed to do this if the Americans are the 800-pound gorilla and they can come always and back up our local tyrannies and protect them? So the idea was that what we'll do is we'll focus on the far enemy first. That was the question, the near enemy or the far enemy. So instead of hitting Mubarak or Abdullah or King Hussein or Saddam Hussein, no, what we'll do is we'll hit the USA. We'll go ahead and solve our biggest problem first. Bog down the world empire, the last remaining superpower, after we helped these men bog down and destroy the Soviet Union in Afghanistan in the 1980s, which did help to result in the destruction of the USSR. There's no coincidence. The wall came down in 88. The troops pulled out of Afghanistan in 89. The Soviet Union was gone by 91. Failing in that war was one of the final straws that broke the USSR's back. And so they said, well, we're just going to do that again against the Americans. And they didn't care how long it took. And they were going to bog us down, bleed us to bankruptcy, and force us out the hard way. Who is Abu Mosab al-Zarqawi? Well, he used to be nobody. Thank you very much. <laughs> right? He was a two-bit rapist, criminal, scumbag who was tortured in a Jordanian prison by the American sock puppet kingdom there. And the torture, through torture, he found religion and, and decided instead of being a ne'er-do-well, he would become a serious holy warrior from now on and went to Afghanistan where he did not join al-Qaeda. Uh, he decided, no, he didn't believe in this far enemy stuff. He wanted to focus on the king of Jordan. And so... That was his thing. He told bin Laden, thanks, but no thanks. I don't want to join you. Then he was hiding in northern Iraqi Kurdistan, which was technically Iraq, but it was essentially an autonomous zone protected by the American no-fly and no-drive zones established by the United States in 1991 after Iraq War One, in the name of protecting the Kurds after Saddam put down the uprising that the Americans had encouraged among the Shia and the Kurds. But so... He was there and Saddam Hussein knew about him. He had a group. He was the leader of a terrorist group called Ansar al-Islam and uh, uh, ben, uh, uh, pardon me, Saddam Hussein, the dictator of Iraq, had like an all points bulletin out for this guy. Like not exactly a warrant for his arrest, but like a be on the lookout for this guy, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, however you say be on the lookout in Arabic, you know, um, 
Well, but then the Bush administration lied. And especially Colin Powell, most famously, but Bush also, in, I think, in his Cincinnati speech and others, but most famously Colin Powell in his great UN speech to get us into the war. He said, there's an Al-Qaeda terrorist named Abu Musab al-Zarqawi and Saddam Hussein is protecting him and giving him aid and comfort. And he lost his leg and Saddam Hussein treated him in a hospital in Baghdad and gave him a fake leg. Total lie. Not true at all. Never happened. Didn't lose the leg and never got a fake one. Never was in a Baghdad hospital. Just lying Iraqi exiles came up with that tall tale. And then he just lied and pretended or the CIA lied to him and he pretended to believe it so he could turn around and tell it to us that uh, this guy was an Al-Qaeda guy when he never was. He had met bin Laden before, but that didn't make him an Al-Qaeda guy any more than it made John Miller, the, the ABC News reporter, an Al-Qaeda guy. He told him no and didn't join. And, and by the way, like joining Al-Qaeda means you take a sacred blood oath, like joining the mafia kind of thing. It's a serious thing. You either did or you didn't take that blood oath, right? It's an on or off switch. It ain't like, oh, he met bin Laden one time, told him no, have a nice day, but that still counts as he's an Al-Qaeda guy. No, it doesn't count. And so this was a major lie. And this is the worst thing about this, man, is that in the run up to the war, the Pentagon begged essentially i mean what do you call it when the the generals went to george bush repeated like like four or five different times there were cia guys on the ground of course preparing the battlefield and special operations forces on the ground in iraq already he's right there we can kill him right now we need to take care of this guy right now again he was outside of saddam hussein's protection he was camping out in the kurdish mountains you know and our guys were already there and so they could have killed them with their hands and their rifles much easier. They could have pointed a laser designator and called in a B-1 airstrike and blew this Ansar al-Islam group right off the face of the earth before the war started. But that would undermine the case for war. And so we, the military, they're not political on this question. They're looking at it like, man, once we start this war, this Zarqawi guy actually could be a real problem. Mr. President, we'd like to murder his ass right now before we invade. Perfectly reasonable. Overruled. Because we need that talking point as an excuse to start this fake war. So that we can pretend this guy who is not tied to Osama bin Laden and is not tied to Saddam Hussein is the link between the two. Unbelievable. Um, who is Abu Yahya Alibi? Oh man, so this is a great one. First, let's talk about his brother, Sheikh Ibn al-Libi. Sheikh Ibn al-Libi was a low-level al-Qaeda fighter who was kidnapped or, you know, abducted, captured by the CIA and taken to Egypt to be mercilessly tortured into implicating Saddam Hussein for it was a total lie that Saddam Hussein was teaching al-Qaeda how to make chemical weapons and how to hijack airplanes. Oh, you don't say hijack airplanes, huh? Okay. In fact, there was a kernel of truth, which was there was an airplane fuselage at a place called Salman Pak in Iraq, where, of course, Iraqi special operations forces and police were trained on how to raid a plane to kill terrorists 
and to save a plane full of civilians from a terrorist hijacking is what that fuselage was for. Not how to train al-Qaeda terrorists, how to take one over. They just lied. And they tortured this guy into saying it. Now, they could have just made it up and said, yeah, no, this guy told us that. But now nah, they went ahead and tortured him into going ahead and saying it so that they could tell the truth when they said he said it. Never mind the fact that they tortured it out of him. And anyway, so he and Zubeda both were tortured into implicating Saddam Hussein for a close relationship with al-Qaeda before September 11th as part of the lies to get us into war. Now, fast forward a couple of years, it's 2003. We're already in Iraq. And Gaddafi is invited in from the cold because Bush needs a PR stunt to say that the Iraq war accomplished something. It frightened Gaddafi into giving up everything and, and coming in. In fact, he'd been begging to come in from the cold since at least the mid-1990s. And in the case of his nuclear weapons program, he had no such thing. Just a bunch of junkie bought at AQ Khan's garage sale, the Pakistani arms dealer, that they, he bought only for the purposes of trading away so that he could be invited in from the cold. Bush needed a PR stunt. Gaddafi wanted the deal, so they brought him in. And Gaddafi had been at war with al-Qaeda all along. Back in the 90s, MI6 and CIA had supported the Libyan Islamic fighting group, Libyan Bin Ladenites, to try to murder Gaddafi. He was the first one who put out a warrant for Osama bin Laden's arrest under Interpol in 1996. So he was very eager. There was such a large Libyan contingent inside al-Qaeda. He had tons of intelligence and was absolutely eager to join up as a full partner in America's war on terrorism. And so they brought him in from the cold and they did enlist him. And one of the things they did was they sent Sheikh Ibn al-Libi home where Gaddafi murdered him in his prison cell and called it a suicide, right? So he was a very loyal partner of the American CIA in waging this war. Pretty hell of a prelude to our later war in Libya. But when we fast forward to our war in Libya, which was 2011, in 2012, there was the Benghazi massacre, the famous Benghazi massacre where Ambassador Stevens was killed. And the reason Ambassador Stevens was killed, which is, it came to light, but it's never given prominence. It's not part of the narrative that anyone seems to remember. Is that what happened was, while the CIA under David Petraeus was running an operation in Benghazi to ship jihadists and weapons off to Syria for the next regime change operation there and you know working with the Qataris and everything to do so at the same time the CIA another part of the same CIA was waging the drone war against what was left of al-Qaeda in Pakistan and I just talked to John Kiriakou an hour ago he said there were 25 of them 25 of them was that was at the start of the drone war in Pakistan they were going after 25 guys. Well, apparently one of the 25 was Sheikh Yahya Alibi, Sheikh Ibn Alibi's brother. And when the CIA killed him with a drone strike in July of 2012, Ayman al-Zawahiri, the surviving leader of al-Qaeda after bin Laden's death, his partner, Mr. Far Enemy, he put out a podcast saying, hey guys, isn't it hilarious that the Americans think that we're friends and are stationed right there with you in Benghazi, Libya? You know, it'd be good would be if you reach out and touch somebody come September 11th to celebrate the anniversary, huh? And then that's exactly what they did. And so the reason, and this is 
after years of scandal by the Republicans about why didn't Obama race in there and save the people fast enough, they never asked the question. Why was David Petraeus and Barack Obama in the middle of and Ambassador Stevens and the CIA men at the safe house, why were they in the middle of committing the greatest Guinness world's record for the highest treason ever committed in a line with these Al Qaeda fighters to use them against Bashar al-Assad in Syria? Unbelievable story. Um, Don't you love it? Any, any more info on the Al Libby brothers? Um, b- before uh, w- we go on to the next, because I, yeah, I was I only familiar. That wraps with that up. Go ahead. Who is Abu Bakar al Baghdadi? Okay, so Abu, it's uh, Bakar, Abu Bakar al Baghdadi. He was, um, I guess, you know, essentially just a minor um, imam, Sunni imam from Baghdad at the time of the beginning of the Iraq War. And he was uh, rounded up in a sweep against members of the insurgency. Whether he had anything to do with the insurgency at that time, I don't know. But the documents prove now, Keith, that he was in Abu Ghraib prison right at the time that all of those infamous pictures of torture were being displayed. For all we know, he's the guy, you know, chained to the wall or, you know, whatever, all the stuff in the pile, in the pile of naked men there. We don't know specific, but specifically, but we do know he was there during the time those same pictures were taken. Uh, and a lot of those were really bad, and the worst ones never came to light, by the way. Uh, they were buried by the intelligence services. Um, but anyway, uh, and then later he was transferred to Camp Buka, which was named after Ronald Buka, who was the uh, New York fire chief, who was obsessed with Al-Qaeda and trying to stop the attack and was, you know, died on September 11th, heroically rescuing people and stuff. So here they invaded this country, Iraq, that didn't have anything to do with September 11th. And they exploited this good man's last name in order to pretend that they were somehow defending America from terrorism by starting a war against a country that had nothing whatsoever to do with Al-Qaeda or terrorism or the September 11th attack against our country at all. Anyway, so during that horrible war that was nothing but a failure in 10 different ways, um, they had all these guys rounded up in Camp Buka. And basically, Baghdadi became the most charismatic leader in there. And after Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who, oh, did I mention after they didn't kill him? Uh, he came down and became one of the worst parts of the Sunni-based insurgency against the American war, all during, uh, for the first, you know, two and a half years of Iraq War II. And he didn't declare his loyalty to Osama bin Laden until a year and a half into the war. He declared that now, okay, now I'm Osama bin Laden's guy. Now it's al-Qaeda in Iraq, something that never had existed before. But then, so once he was killed in the spring of 06, there were a couple of interim leaders. And then Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi essentially inherited al-Qaeda in Iraq, this group that had been Sarkawi's group. And... Um, you know, they were really on the down and outs. They were essentially a bunch of has-beens. When they called their group, when they first changed the name to the Islamic State of Iraq, they didn't control city block. They were nothing. It was a joke. On one hand, it said, well, we see what these guys' aspirations are. But on the other hand, they just have no power or ability to accomplish this whatsoever. 
So it's kind of ironic and a joke that they're now they pick the time to call themselves the Islamic State of Iraq. They're totally marginalized. They were essentially it wasn't David Petraeus and the surge that did it, the awakening that did it. It was the local Iraqi Sunni tribes and the local leaders of the Iraqi Sunni insurgency got sick and tired of these guys and had essentially marginalized them. They had only made matters worse the whole time during the war and hadn't really helped at all and so got marginalized. Then fast forward just a year, just one year, American troops are still in Iraq. I mean, the, the real marginalization happened in 06, 07, but American troops are still in Iraq through 2011. And while they're still there in the name of fighting the remnants of the Sunni-based insurgency, including the Islamic State of Iraq, Barack Obama's taken their side in Libya. And then, as I just said, started this huge operation to take all the jihadis and weapons and send them on to the next regime change in Syria. And then, as we've covered on the show in the past, two and a half years of support for the jihadist uprising against Bashar al-Assad in Syria led to the Iraqi faction of the Islamic State, led by Baghdadi, breaking away, not just from the Syrian faction of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which is, we call al-Nusra, or now Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which is led by a guy named uh, Jolani, Abu Muhammad al-Jolani. He also broke away from the authority of Ayman al-Zawahiri of al-Qaeda. And one of the things he did, it wasn't just a split. I mean, they were fighting over Syrian oil and stuff like this. But it was also a doctrinal split. You know what? I don't want to fight the far enemy, or at least as long as they're around, I'll fight them. But I want my caliphate now which ignored the wisdom that, yeah, but how are you going to have a caliphate if the Americans will come and bomb it again? You know, you, no point waging your revolution until the Americans are finally gone. And Baghdadi said, well, screw you, Zawahiri. You can make your law, but you can't enforce it. And so I'm going to do whatever I want. And so uh, he seized and consolidated a real Islamist state in eastern Syria in 2013. And then one year later, in June of 2014, he and his men famously rolled in their Toyota Helix pickup trucks right into Mosul and within a week or two finished sacking all of the west of, uh, uh, of Iraq, western Iraqi Sunni stand, Fallujah, Tikrit, Baiji, uh, Ramadi. Well, it took them a while to get Ramadi. I always lump that in. But anyway, they essentially seized virtually all of western Iraq. And then Baghdadi got up there on the balcony at the Grand Mosque in Mosul like Mussolini and gave his big speech and declared that he's now to be known as the Caliph Ibrahim, the uh, leader of the Islamic Caliphate, and that there is no such thing as the country of, of Iraq or Syria. These are evil, satanic, secularist, Western inventions, and that this is all the Caliphate. All these borders are hereby canceled, and I am the ruler of all of that I perceive. And so then, of course, America had to start Iraq War Three in order to uh, help the Iraqis to destroy the Islamic State, kill another probably half a million people in the effort um, to destroy the Islamic State and lead us to the situation we are now. Baghdadi uh, was killed himself in like 2018 or so. And then um, he, uh, uh, hang on one second. And, um, and then, you know, U.S. troops are embedded still. About 5,000 troops are still in, or maybe 2,000, 3,000 troops are still in western Iraq 
fighting what's left of ISIS again. Now the mopping up exercise of that old ISI. Again, Zarqawi's group, which the Pentagon could have blown right off the face of the earth before they even invaded, even presuming the invasion of Iraq. They could have wiped this fledgling, tiny ass, would be, could be one day dangerous Al-Qaeda-ish group. And Bush wouldn't let them do it. And they ended up growing through the years of Iraq War II. And then the war in Syria grew into the Islamic Caliphate. That had been the ridiculous propaganda of George W. Bush and had been the wildest dream of Osama bin Laden. That could have never come true. There's a bunch of countries in the way. Where are you going to put your caliphate? But Bush and Barack Obama made it happen for them. The book is Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. Scott, what is the difference between Al-Qaeda and the Mujahideen? Well, typically the Mujahideen is, well, it's uh, in, uh, really, it's a broader term. Usually when someone's talking about the Mujahideen, they mean in Afghanistan during a specific period of time. So if they're talking about the Mujahideen in the 1980s, then... You know, I guess that somewhat includes the Arab Afghans, but usually I think that's the distinction. People say, well, the Arab Afghan army would be like Azam and bin Laden and the people who came from Syria and Saudi and Egypt and, and Chechnya and wherever around the Middle East to come and help the Afghans. Whereas the Mujahideen, I think, is usually would more refer to the uh, Pashtun warlords that America backed in that insurrection. And now... You know, they get conflated a lot with the Taliban. But in fact, what it was, was the warlords and the Mujahideen that America backed in the war in the 80s. After the war was over and the Soviets left, they tore the country apart in a horrible civil war. One of America's favorite guys there was Gubaldin Hekmatyar. Well, when he couldn't take the capital city of Kabul after the Soviet regime fell, he just shelled it for years and killed like 50,000 people. He was an absolute butcher and monster. He's known as the Butcher of Kabul. And then one of America's other friends was the um, Shah Massoud. And it turns out that actually he was a KGB double agent all along. So he ended up fighting on the other side of the Civil War, on the same side as General Dostum, who had been a general in the Communist Army. And they ended up forming the Northern Alliance. And so... Um, you know, and and there were other all different other Pashtun warlords as well. And these guys essentially to a man were just criminals, the worst kinds of murderers and rapists and torturers and heroin dealers. And so then in 1994, the Taliban rose up. It's almost like something out of a movie. And there's multiple sources on this. I quote in Fool's Errand that tell virtually the same story in different ways, but not very different um, that. Really what happened was there were some young girls who had been kidnapped to and were presumably, I guess, being raped and abused by this warlord in Kandahar City. And a group of, you know, distraught family members came to Mullah Omar, who was the leading religious authority in the area. And they said, you've got to do something. And he said, all right, then. And, you know, rounded up a posse went over there and pulled rank on the warlord and saved the children that he had kidnapped and was abusing. And so everybody's like, hip, hip, hooray for Mullah Omar. He's come here to save us. And then they just took this parade on the road and they just went from town to town saying, look, you can either join us or we'll wipe your sorry asses out one or the other. 
we're consolidating power now. And they went all through the South and, uh, you know, all tales say, I mean, every, all versions of this story say the people were happy as hell that the Taliban were there. So the Taliban were not the Mujahideen. Now, some of them had fought in the war, but they were not really what we call the Mujahideen. They were the solution to the Mujahideen, these horrible butchers and warlords and murderers. And they came. And then again, Saudi and Pakistan supported them and Bill Clinton's government supported their effort to go ahead. Eh, these guys, they're not so bad. Let's go ahead and support them. They might be religious extremists and they're like corrupt on the top, but they don't just extort every last man, woman and child. They're law and order types corrupt at the top of law and order on the street, which is what the people desperately craved. Right. They needed security so bad. And these guys provided local cops who more or less left you alone unless you were a bad guy. You know what I mean? And so they even when they got to Kabul in 1996, they were welcomed into Kabul, which is this giant multi-ethnic city of all these people. Now, here come these Pashtun hillbillies from the far side of North Carolina type hillbillies come marching in to the capital city and the people welcome them in because they're known as being pious enough that, again, they, they are insistent on law and order, sort of like Saddam Hussein. Only one guy is going to kill people around here, me and nobody else, that kind of thing. And that was their deal. They came to instill order and save the country from absolute chaos, which is what they did. And then and the Americans helped them do it. And the Americans, in fact, didn't want them to compromise with the Northern Alliance and have any peace conference or any kind of peace deal. They wanted the Taliban to win the war outright against the Northern Alliance in order to be able to provide a monopoly, a true monopoly on security over the entire country so they could build an oil pipeline from Turkmenistan to the Pakistani port of Karachi in order to screw the Russians. Are you familiar, uh, I know you've written ab about it, but uh, would you categorize uh, an event in the war on terror as under the Bush administration, there was a deliberate attempt to make sure bin Laden escaped getting killed in Afghanistan. Did that happen? Mm, I kind of lost you on the question there. Yes. On, I think they deliberately let him escape, but what did you mean about the getting killed there? Uh, they, they were, they had the ability to kill bin Laden, but oh, that deliberately let him, him yeah. escape. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, basically the way I make the case is in the book is that in both books, but especially in fool's errand, I, you know, have more sources for you and such. Um, that, you know, essentially the deal is that they did call in airstrikes, you know, numerous ones, and they could have killed bin Laden that way. But at the same time, the Delta Force operators and the CIA Special Activities Division paramilitaries on the ground there were begging for reinforcements and they just couldn't get them. And this is the top tier of special operations forces, the Delta Force leading this thing. There's a book called Kill Bin Laden by uh, the pseudonym is Dalton Fury. Um, his real name, I'm sorry, I know it almost every time it escapes me right now. Um, uh, Thomas Greer. Thomas Greer is the guy's name. Um, and the book is Dalton Fury, uh, Killing Kill Bin Laden. And he's the leader of, of Delta Force Team B there. And he's just mystified the whole time. You can tell even as he's writing the book a couple of years later based on all of his notes that he took during the time. He's still mystified as he's writing the thing that, you know, we got there and they're pulling half the Delta Force out at the same time they're sending our half in. 
Like instead of sending in our team B to complement team A, we're replacing them. But where the hell are you going with my team A? Like I need these guys right now. And then they come up with this silly excuse that he didn't seem to quite believe that, well, we're trying to fake bin Laden out and make him think we're giving up and leaving. What? Well, to what end then? Are you setting a trap for when he pokes his head back up or something? No. It doesn't make any sense. And then the whole time that they're waging the assault, they're being made to rely on local Afghan militiamen who were loyal to bin Laden. It was Gubaldine Hekmachar who later laughed that he took the CIA's money and helped bin Laden escape across the border. Playing a double game. Meanwhile, they had like 20,000 army rangers at Bagram Air Base. They had at least a few thousand Green Berets, I forget, five or 10,000 Green Berets in the north of the country fighting the Taliban who did not attack us. And they had the 75th Ranger Regiment down in Kandahar and screwing around again, fighting the Taliban, not Al-Qaeda. Meanwhile, Delta Force and CIA and the airplanes have Al-Qaeda cornered in one square mile in Tora Bora in the White Mountains in the eastern Nangahar province. And they are refused all reinforcements. Oh, and I left out the Marines. General Mattis, who later became our Secretary of Defense under Donald Trump, he was there with 4,000 Marines. And it's funny, when I bring that up, people go, oh, Marines? I mean, like, we might as well be talking about another country's military, right? Like, armies, you know, Delta, Rangers, and, and Green Berets. Okay, fine. They're all U.S. Army, at least, you know, but... You want to bring Marines into this thing? Are you cr like, I don't know. I thought we were all on the same team here, guys. But anyway, they didn't even need Mattis's Marines. If they had had the Green Berets and the Rangers to come to their defense or to their assistance, they could have sealed the Pakistani border and prevented bin Laden from escaping. And that's what they all said. And they knew he was there from the second week in November at a minimum, maybe before that, depending on who you believe. But let's say conservative statement, they knew where he was by the second week in November. They got four weeks to kill him before he escapes across the border into Pakistan. And they don't. And the whole time, as the CIA commander Gary Bernson says, and as Thomas Greer says, we just couldn't understand it. Why won't you let us have some men, man? And then Thomas Greer went and did, everyone can watch this on YouTube, went and did a special with Scott Pelley on 60 Minutes, where he wears a fake beard and a hat and a disguise and goes by Dalton Fury. And he gets up there and he has a 3D model of the whole area. And he explains, and I like highlighting this because I think it's the kind of thing nobody really notices until you kind of flick their ear about it. And they go, oh, wait a minute. Haven't you heard Keith a million times? Like, where do they get this from? How do they do this? Osama bin Laden slipped across the border into Pakistan. That's the magic word where anytime anyone discusses him escaping into Pakistan, it's always he slipped as though, oh, it was the dark of night and it was all this fog and no one could have possibly stopped him. And then somehow... This is like a semi-permeable membrane that terrorists can cross, but the Delta Force cannot? The top tier of American Special Operations Forces, why aren't they allowed? That's the only reason they didn't track and hunt and kill bin Laden after he crossed the border, is they didn't have permission to. They begged 
and he explains all this on video. The Delta Force commander on scene tells the story on 60 Minutes. And you can tell he's still beside himself. Man, you know what, Scott Pelley? We had three different plans. First, we were going to do this, and then we are going to do that, and then we were going to get Chinook helicopters to fly us into Pakistan, and then we are going to hike over the mountains and meet him from the east. What you going to do now, Osama? This is the Delta Force. These guys' job is hiking mountains to kill terrorists, right? That's the job. And then the excuses that the Bush administration used for why they didn't allow this was, oh, well, you know, we didn't want to stir up some Pakistani tribesmen. Well, why the hell not? Who cares at all about stirring up some Pakistani tribesmen? Listen, we're hunting a six and a half foot Arab. Stay the hell out of our way or we'll blast you. You went that way? Okay, thank you. Here's a hundred bucks. Yeah. They want to get in the way? Tough for them. We're hunting a guy who killed 3,000 of our guys. But you act like no. He jumped into hyperspace. He slipped across the border. And now, but where did he go? To Russia? Oh, they hate Al-Qaeda. They're enemies of Al-Qaeda. Anyway, where did he go? He went to Pakistan, but they're our ally. And as I explain in the book, the book's behind me over here on the shelf, 88 Days to Kandahar by Robert Grenier, the lunatic who calls you and me, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda that got to be counterinsurgency next, um, you know, recently in the media. The same guy was the head of the CIA's, uh, he was a station chief in, bin La- in uh, Islamabad. And in the book, he describes how he arranged with the Pakistani military that if the Americans ever come across the border chasing Osama bin Laden, This is how we prevent friendly fire. And they had the Pakistani army and the frontier corps. And he made liaison relationships with both and said, listen, if bin Laden comes across the border and you feel like blasting him, great. But be careful that you don't shoot my Delta force who may be right hot on their trail. Okay, so they were already working it out. The presumption was from Robert Grenier's point of view, the presumption was that, of course, if they do come across the border, the Delta Force is going to be hot on their heels, right? Nope. They let him go, Keith. They let him go. Because who cares if Saddam Hussein is friends with Osama bin Laden if bin Laden's already dead? And the American mm-hmm. people believe that vengeance is ours and we already won the war. The Bush administration was talking about, no, they're Al-Qaeda in 60 countries. Blatant lie. We're going to war in Iraq. We're going to war wherever we want in the name of Al-Qaeda. And so they were better off letting the butcher of New York City and Virginia escape. A guy who just finished slaughtering hundreds of American military officers in their headquarters, let him go just weeks later. Uh, Back to one name that I missed. Um, Who is uh, Ramsey Youssef? Well, Ramzi Youssef is the nephew of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was the primary ringleader and organizer of the September 11th attack. And he was the guy who was brought in to build the bomb for the first World Trade Center bombing back in 1993. And it's an important story that the FBI could have stopped the plot because the guy who was originally recruited to build the bomb, turns out, was an Egyptian army intelligence officer who had a previous you know, relationship with the American military from training in Egypt and so forth. 
And so he was lying. He was basically playing along with them and then went walk in to the FBI. Dream come true to the FBI, right? Guy mm -hmm. walks right in the door. I've been recruited to build a bomb to kill you people with. You know, help me out. And so they got him a couple agents, Floyd and Antisev. And they were running this guy's name was Ahmad Salem. And his job was going to be, they had already proposed the whole thing was they were going to make a fake bomb with inert explosives and then set the whole thing off. But then everybody would be guilty as hell. They would go all the way to the last step and then the, the fake bomb wouldn't detonate, but then gotcha. And we'd swoop in and get them and all this. But then it turns out that the FBI supervisor was a guy named Carson Dunbar. And Carson Dunbar didn't give a crap about all this crazy Islamic stuff he can't pronounce. He's just worried about John Gotti and the mob and whatever his interests are. And so Ahmad Salem, when he asked for a raise, he wanted $500 a week. And Carson Dunbar wouldn't give it to him. His agents were fighting for him. Floyd and Antisev were going, come on, boss, please. And the boss said no. And then the boss tried to insist that he had to wear a wire in the mosque. And he's like, look, man. I'm sleeping on the floor of the mosque in a robe with these dudes. I'm not wearing a wire. Okay, I can't. They'll see it. It's impossible. So, no. And Carson Dunbar was like, well, fine. You don't even get your $200 then. Screw you. You're off the case. We unconfidential informant you. Go away. So, he went and told his friends that, hey, guys, I think the FBI's on to me. So I better drop out of this thing and leave. And so he left the case. Then they brought in Ramsey Youssef, who built the bomb that did go off and did kill six people. And very nearly, Keith, if the truck, this has been argued all this time, if the truck had only been parked 10 feet this way or 10 feet that way, they would have succeeded in knocking one tower over into the other, breaking it at the bottom from the sub-basement level in the parking garage having one tower break from the bottom, hit the other tower and knock them both over, which could have killed, I don't know, 50,000 people in an instant. And because of the, the other buildings in the way that they would have fallen into as well. And so, and then, you know, a big part of it is, and they deserve some share of the blame and responsibility for this. The next morning, two days later, the ATF attacked the Branch Davidians. And this was, Bill Clinton had only been in office for a month and a week. And what Bill Clinton really needed to do was sit there and think about, damn, what if one tower had fallen over into the other one? Who are these guys? Oh, there are Mujahideen from Afghanistan? And they're coming, and now they're in America, and they're blowing up our landmarks? Because that was who it was, the veterans of the Afghan war running that thing, you know, uh, the bosses of it. And that was why they were let into the country is the CIA intervened to allow them into the country because these are friends of ours. Oh, Egyptian Islamic Jihad. We like them. And so um, instead of thinking really hard about, wow, I'm the brand new president of the United States and uh, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan's stormtrooper mercenary killers are already blowing back against me and I better figure out what to do about that. Instead, he and the rest of the country were completely consumed with declaring war against a tiny piece of property in the prairie in northeastern central Texas, where 
They pretended that David Koresh was Saddam Hussein with illegal weapons and bad to his own people and so crazy you can't negotiate with him. And all we can do is lay siege and sanctions and blockade until we send in the Delta Force to kill him. And that's how they spent Bill Clinton's first hundred days. And so after that, and after all, who wants to learn a bunch of Arabic names and all this stuff? You're telling me you got to change this subject to... This new subject is being brought up by somebody else. It's not what we want to do. We want to talk about recycling or China or whatever. And now you're telling me that this external force is trying to get us to change the subject to something that is not interesting. And we don't want to learn about a bunch of guys named Abu anything and all of this stuff. And so leave us alone. And so then that kind of became the ethos throughout the 1990s. As long as we can continue to use these guys against Russian interests in Eastern Europe and in uh, you know Central Asia then we'll just kind of ignore their growing threat to the American people at the same time. How many civilians have been killed in the war on terror? I don't think we really know, but there's a, a really good uh, study and estimate. I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the group. Is Concerned Doctors something, something. It's a real in-depth study where they said they think it's more than 2 million. And I think, you know, that that may be high, but I don't know, Keith, you know, Probably a million killed in Iraq. There's, you know, there's certainly um, reliable, rational studies, not inflated garbage, but, you know, uh, solid studies that purport to show that approximately a million excess deaths happened in the years of Iraq War II. And then if you add to that, the at least, uh, you know, the, the reasonable estimates seem to be about half a million killed in just in the war in Syria. Then there's certainly a, you know, by 2013, a quarter of a million Somalis had died in the famine there, which I blame on the USA and the war. It wasn't the sun. They didn't lay down and die in Kenya and Ethiopia and Eritrea. It was in Somalia. They laid down and died because the sun was aided and abetted by George W. Bush you know, destroying these people's country so they couldn't eat. So if everybody starves to death under Mao counts as a murder, then the same thing in Somalia under George W. Bush is the exact same thing. And then, you know, in Libya, I think the numbers total in the in the war of 2011 and then in the 10 years since is probably, I don't know, a couple of hundred thousand. There's been relatively low level fighting compared to some of these other absolute catastrophes. That's not to play down their suffering. A couple of hundred thousand people dead in violence and deprivation and this kind of thing is a hell of a thing. And then, you know, down into Mali and all of that, I don't know, a couple of few tens of thousands. Afghanistan, you know, again, I don't think there's really any way to know. It's got to be, you know, more than half a million who have died. It, the fighting has not been as intense as it was in Iraq War II, uh, nor has the starvation campaign uh, been something like we've seen in Yemen. Um, you know, the, the numbers seem to claim usually, Keith, I think, you know, 10 to 20,000 innocent civilians killed a year or something like that by wild estimates. And because just in Afghanistan, we're talking about a land the size of Texas, which is huge. I don't know if you ever flown over Texas or driven across the thing, but it's tremendously big. I'm from here. And that's how big Afghanistan is. It's virtually all badlands and countryside and no electricity and no communication. And people get exploded and nobody ever reports it to even be ignored. So we don't really know. And then, 
you know, in Pakistan, they waged this drone war, which probably killed thousands, you know, 10,000 people, something like that. But they also aided and abetted the Pakistani war against the Tariqi Taliban there in Pakistan. And that probably killed 80,000 people and, you know, all kinds of refugees and whatever. You know, the Cost of War Project, they try to add this stuff up, too. I'm not exactly sure what numbers they have on total deaths. I know they came out with a recent study that they said that their their low-end estimate was that 37 million people have been displaced, which is the greatest uh, refugee crisis since the end of World War II. 